1924, and the Summer Olympics were being held in Paris. In track and field, Great Britain was a force to be reckoned with. They took gold in the men's 100, 400, and 800-meter races. I'd I'd give you the, the women's stats, but women's track and field wouldn't debut until the 1928 games. But in 1924, the Brits had two superstar runners, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. Both were at the pinnacle of their careers. Both were the best in the world at their races. Abrams would take gold in the 100-meter dash. He earned the title, the fastest man in the world. Liddell had trained for the 100-meter, but the race was being run on a Sunday. And so as a devout Christian, a Presbyterian, he said, no, I'm not going to run on Sunday. And so he switched to the 400-meter race, a race he hadn't really trained for. And despite that, he took gold in the 400 meter and set a new world record. See, these guys were athletic giants. And yet, despite their wild successes, they had radically different responses to their successes. Harold Abrams defined himself by his running. It was the main thing in his life. He seemed to tell himself, I can just win the gold medal. Then I'll be satisfied, and I'll be, I'll be happy, and I'll feel worthwhile about myself. Here, here's how he said it. He said, I'm forever in pursuit. I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Those are his words. That's not mine. And because of that, you see, after winning the gold, he experienced an enormous letdown. He'd experienced the the greatest accomplishment in his field, on the grandest of stages, and it still wasn't enough. He was still left depressed and anxious, craving for more. Eric Waddell, on the other hand, had a totally different response. He was really good at running, but it wasn't his deepest identity. It wasn't how he defined himself. Rather, that was in his relationship with God. After the Olympics and after his gold medal, then he felt free from his successes. And in a way, he felt liberated from his successes. He wasn't enslaved to another gold medal and another race. Here's how he said it. Waddell said, God made me for a purpose. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he'd shock the world. Within a year, he'd walk away from running altogether He'd enlist as a missionary to communist China, and he'd serve there until his death, untimely death, in 1943 in a communist concentration camp as the Japanese were moving through Asia. So you have two men, Harold Abrams and and Eric Liddell, standing side by side from the same country as champion Olympic sprinters. In some ways, they look nearly identical to each other. And yet in other ways, they couldn't be more different. One, in a sense, was enslaved by his success, and the other was absolutely liberated from it. What's the difference? The answer is where they found their deepest identity. That's the topic of this morning's sermon. Your identity matters, is what we are going to say. So we're going to explore today. So I mentioned this in announcements a few moments ago, but maybe you weren't here. You were busy with the kids. Uh, This morning marks the first sermon in a new seven-week series for us titled, Not Your Own. 
It's kind of this topical series, which is a, a little bit different style for us because usually we're going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We just finished the book of Genesis. We saw one of the major themes is God is the creator, the king, the owner of the universe. And as a result, he has authority over all of it. And so what we want to do is take this major theme from Genesis we saw and start to apply it to many of the different cultural issues that are facing us today. What does it mean that God is the creator, the king, and that we are not our own, but we belong to him? Now, you see, it's important that we read and interpret Scripture, but it's also important that we learn to read and interpret our culture. This was actually the Apostle Paul's method in Acts 14 and 17 and other places. And there's lots of Christians, lots of preachers that will look out at the, the culture around us, the evils of it, and just kind of rail and yell against that. And, and to be sure, we, we need convictional Christians who are committed to biblical truth, especially when it's unpopular. But in an increasingly secular society, we also need Christians who will read and interpret the culture so that they can explain the gospel to their friends who aren't yet Christians in a way that is understood. And in other words, what I mean by that is to say this, yelling louder isn't always the best strategy. That's what I'm trying to say. And so you look beyond the conclusions of the culture to some of the underlying narratives, and these often show up in various kind of cultural artifacts, in the art, and in songs, in TV shows, in movies, in these kinds of things. And we look for the underlying narrative, and then we learn and say, how do I explain the gospel in light of that narrative, in a way that shows the gospel is actually a better fulfillment of the desire that you're looking for? It's not just proclaiming, but also explaining at the same time. And for us to learn to do that, that, that's part of what it means when we say that every member is sent, that every member is a missionary every week. I'm not just learning what is the gospel, how do I say it, how do I believe it, but how do I explain it so that the world around can understand what is meant? Now, if that sounds confusing, you're not sure what I mean, what I hope to do in this kind of seven-week series is to model that of how we read and interpret the culture and explain the gospel in a way that can be understood. And to be sure, our, our culture sends all sorts of messages, right? But I think one of the most basic messages, it's underlying narratives that I was talking about, is, is something like this. Be true to yourself. Have the courage to follow your own heart. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. You belong to you, and no one else can tell you who you are. Be true to you, something like that. Anna Quinlan was a uh, or is a journalist for the New York Times, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, really renowned journalist and writer. There was a uh, commencement address that she gave to a graduation recently, and, and here's how she described the spirit of the age in her advice to recent grads. She said this, each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse. The source that bedevils us. It is the source of homophobia, xenophobia, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue. Because it tells us there is one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel. When the only right way is to feel your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its timpani are saying. If you're not familiar with timpani, that's a, a kind of a drum. 
And in an orchestra, the timpani serves as sort of the, the heartbeat, the underlying heartbeat that drives the whole orchestra. So the message for Miss Quinlan and really the rest of our culture is that the only right way to live is to listen to your heart, to be true to yourself, and to march to the beat of your own drum. This message assumes that we're the authority, and therefore we get to define ourselves. But the Bible tells us a very different story. And so in this series, we're going to take the, the story of the Bible and kind of set it alongside the story that our culture is telling us and apply it to a, a host of different issues. So this week in identity, next week in sexuality, then marriage, vocation, finances, human dignity, and then in justice. And with each issue, what we want to ask and answer is this. What does it mean to see that issue and to recognize you are not your own, but you belong to someone else? How does that truth inform how we approach these other issues? I, I tell you, I've been looking forward to this series for months. I knew we were going to kind of come here after the book of Genesis and take some of those big truths and start to get even more practical and teasing it out. Uh, so I'm excited for this. I hope it's helpful for you as well. Uh, and what I want to do today is use sort of a compare and contrast sort of outline. We'll compare the modern concept of identity with the biblical concept of identity and look at how both of them are understood. Uh, I just want to say right at the beginning, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I am really glad you came. Thanks for being here. And uh, you, know, you may not agree with everything in my analysis and how we look at this, and that's okay. I realize it takes a while to think through various pieces and say, like, man, is this, am I agree with that? Do I not? Is that true? Is it not? Uh, but I hope you'll listen carefully uh, and think through these things. If you have questions, I'd love to chat afterwards. Uh, you know, maybe we, we could even get coffee or something this week and think through more of these these issues together. Uh, and if you're here and you are a Christian, what I hope that you'll do is you'll look at this and say, are there areas in my life where I think of my own identity more in the terms of what our culture is telling us and not as much with what the Bible is telling me? And try to identify areas where maybe your life just doesn't line up with what Scripture says. All right, so let's get started thinking about the, the idea of identity, the modern concept of it. Uh, four things about modern identity. The first one is this, that modern identity is achieved. It's very, very core to the idea of what modern people understand their identity to be. It's, it's an achieved identity. And there's no doubt that, that older generations and younger generations are trying to accomplish different things in different ways pretty easy to see, I think. But both embrace this more modern view of identity that is achievement-based. And so a younger generation is going to say, well, I achieve value by throwing off the rules. I achieve value perhaps through some sort of transgression or through innovation. That, that's how I achieve an identity that's worthwhile. There was a, an Apple ad that Steve Jobs kind of voiced over in uh, that I think captures the spirit of this pretty well. Here's, here's what Steve Jobs said. He said, Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, you can disagree with them, glorify them or vilify them. But about the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. You hear that basic spirit in there of the achievement-based identity? Now, now, maybe they change things in a good way. Maybe they change things in a bad way. But their identity is in what they've achieved. Or, or you think of, of more of a, a kid movie that would kind of capture the same idea, the movie Frozen. 
right? And what is the, what is the, the theme song? What, are the, what do the lyrics of that say? I've got to see what I can do, test the limits, and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I break through. I say no right, no wrong, no rules. I've achieved my identity by throwing off all of the rules. It's, it's something I have to do to find myself. Right? Now, now, the point of that isn't to say that challenging authority is always a bad thing. Right? Park said, we're here as a Protestant church. We celebrate that 500 years ago, Luther and other reformers challenged authority structures that were wrong in what they were doing. So it's kind of a separate question of like, well, which rules should be challenged, which should be embraced? That's a, that's a sidebar question that we could maybe come to for another interesting discussion. But what the point I'm trying to make is that there's an achievement in throwing off rules of, oh, now I found myself, whether the rules were good or bad, once I do that, then, I'm, then I found myself. Now I have found my identity. And that's how younger generations might think of that. But an older generation would have a different kind of achievement-based identity. They're going to find value in being true to, them, to their family and tradition and to the way things have been. Right? You think maybe back to um, the movie Mary Poppins. There's Mr. Banks, one of the main characters, and he's got his goals of becoming successful and wealthy, moving up the corporate ladder. You know, his name is Mr. Banks. You catch what they're doing there with the, the casting. Say, so, yeah, this is the guy that, that wants to be Mr. Moneybags. And at the end of the movie, what happens to Mr. Banks? He realizes, I've been doing the wrong thing. I've been chasing the wrong things, or at least having my, my priorities wrong. And so I achieve the correct identity by saying, no thanks to that. I'm going to come back and be true to my family, spend time with my kids, and let's go fly a kite up to the highest height, send it soaring up through the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Oh, let's go. Fly a kite, right? And you, you see the same thing. He achieves his identity and saying, now I'm valuable, now I'm worthwhile because I found these right things I ought to be doing, right? So, so, so both younger and older generations, while they pursue different things, are basically embracing an achievement-type style of, of understanding their identity. That's the first thing. It's modern identity is achievement-based. The second thing to, to notice about modern identity is it's, it's very fragile, Modern identity is fragile. What I mean by that is that humans are irreducibly relational. We are relational creatures. That means we must have validation from others. So while it sounds nice to just say, look inside to myself, be true to myself, it's really not livable at all. And I think this explains the social media phenomenon. It's a giant experiment in how do I get validation from others as quickly as possible and as much of it as possible. But of course, the great problem with this way of thinking, both in social media and without social media, is that nobody knows our failures quite like we do, right? And so, so if my identity is based in what I've achieved, can I really tell you where I haven't achieved, where I don't measure up, where I'm not that good? Like my, my really deep feathers, am I free to say that to you? And because I feel like I'm not, it makes my identity very fragile. I don't know where I can be myself. And you say this a little bit differently. I need to tell you who I am so that you can validate me. But at the same time, I can't tell you who I really am. Because if you knew everything about me, then you would not validate me and you would leave me alone and wouldn't have anything to do with me. And it, as a result, I'm incredibly fragile in how I understand myself. 
Maybe one of the better ways to see this is looking at data from kids who grew up in the social media phenomenon. And uh, some of this data comes from um, Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, I don't know how you say his name, H-A-I-D-T, professor at New York University, great uh, author, look at some of his stuff, I think Coddling of the American Mind was his most recent, and he's got another one coming out next year. the anxious generation, I think it's titled. Anyways, here's some of the data that, that hate pulls to help um, illustrate this point of the fragile identity. And he's comparing uh, teens and preteens from 2013 to 23, that 10 year stretch, with the 10 year stretch immediately preceding it. So basically, those who grew up with social media versus those who didn't grow up with social media is the, the demographic he's pulling. Among those, the percentage of non-fatal self-harm, so some kind of cutting or other self-harm mechanism, up 62% for teens, up 189% for preteens. In suicide rates, up 70% for teens, up 151% for preteens. That's just one... 10-year stretch compared to the 10-year stretch preceding it. This isn't looking at like what happened in 1930, right? This is crazy to see that, but the point is, the point is this, the modern identity is producing very fragile people. We don't know who we are. Uh, Cultural commentator Carl Truman says it this way. He said this, we are healthier and, or wealthier and healthier than our ancestors in the 16th and even the mid-20th centuries, but we do not know who we are anymore. That's the, the fragile self. We've lost sense of our identity. And that, no doubt, helps explain, for example, the catastrophic levels of anxiety in the West, which, on the whole, enjoy greater material prosperity and security than has been typical throughout human history. The point of this, then, is you need a deeper grounding. We all need a deeper grounding for ourselves than merely looking inward at ourselves. It's not enough to carry us, right? So that's the second thing of the modern idea of identity. It's Yes, achievement-based, but it's also fragile. The third thing is that modern identity, modern identity is individualized. Modern identity is individualized. When you find your identity by looking into yourself, being true to yourself and achieving that image, then what happens is relationships become a means to accomplishing that end. Relationships help me become who I want to be. I get in a relationship if that person or that relationship helps me look the way I want to look or be the way I want to be. That ends up making all relationships entirely about me and not about the other person. Right? It's just a means of how can I move myself along. So do I feel important with this person? Yes, that make, that's a good relationship for me. Do I feel beautiful with this person? Or do they make me look more beautiful? Yes, it's kind of a social trade-off in a sense of what we're saying here. I think this is why, in many ways, we feel more connected than ever, but more isolated and lonely than ever. Because the relationship isn't actually about the other person. It's individualized. It's just about me. So at the core, these relationships end up being about self-actualization, making me look more merciful, more compassionate, because I spend time with someone who's maybe not as well off as me or more powerful or important or anything like that. In fact, if you're, um, if you're familiar with Ed Sheeran and any of his music, this is the, the, the problem he's pointing out in his song, Beautiful People. He, he kind of bemoans this 
phenomenon he's noticing. He's like, yeah, this is actually very socially fragmenting. This doesn't help us here. And his greatest fear is to fall into that, he says. I think if you look at, at sociology, what this, what this also maybe helps to explain is the dramatic drops in childbirth we've seen recently. Because if I can get out of any relationship I want, whenever it's no longer beneficial for me, then I just do that. But what's a relationship that is really, really not able to be exited? A parenting relationship. And so if all relationship is a means for me to find myself, and I leave when it no longer helps me find and move myself in that direction, then you end up saying things like this. Well, it's just too stressful to be a parent. I couldn't handle that, I don't think. And it's an effect of looking internally to find my identity because kids aren't really going to help you with that. They're just going to require a lot out of you. And so the individualized nature of how we think about identity is impacting birth rate in that way, I think. So that's the third part. Modern identity is individualized. Fourth and final thing about modern identity is it is conflicted. It's conflicted. What we mean by that is to be true to yourself inevitably will end up pulling you in different directions. It's going to pull you in different directions. So you might say on the one hand, well, I want romance and a career and a family. Well, each of those things are going to be pulling you in different ways, and it's very difficult to have a uh, complete, you know, dreamlike understanding of all three of those at the exact same time. You're going to have to give up one over the other. Or sometimes you hear people say, uh, especially younger people, well, I kind of want to be young and reckless, have this kind of bad boy, bad girl kind of mentality, and yet I want to be seen as an adult and respected in the office. It's like, well, well, those two things kind of work at odds with each other. And your deepest desires, you look internal for what you want, is going to make it a bit conflicted. And so you might get one thing that you long for and you desire, but it still leaves you feeling somewhat unsatisfied. So, so you might think of uh, Taylor Swift's hit song, 22, right? And so, so she starts out by talking about, hey, here is how I'm throwing off the rules. This feels like a perfect night to get breakfast at midnight and fall in love with strangers. Like the stuff my parents said I shouldn't do. I'm going to throw off the rules and I, I achieve my identity by those things, right? And then what does she say after that? We're happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. Think about that. We're happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. Threw off the rules, I got what I wanted, and yet it's very, conf- it's very conflicted. It's pulling me in different directions. And right after that, she says, it's miserable and magical. Oh, yeah. Right? It's kind of that the anthem is driving, and you, sometimes you miss the narrative of what's being said there. It's like, yeah, these things are pulling me in different directions here. What that, what that means, then, is the more I look inward for my identity, the more twisted up in knots I'm going to become because I'm looking in the wrong place. And if I were to go way, way, way back in history to the 3rd, 4th century, the African theologian, Augustine, he was actually on to all of this a very long time ago, and here's how he would describe it. He'd say this, Myself is dispersed and scattered. My thoughts and desires do not form a coherent whole. I cannot find myself strictly by looking on the inside. Only when purified and molten by the fire of your love do I flow together. What he's saying is we all require an external standard to do two things. To help us prioritize our desires and to help us refine our desires. Which of these desires is most important and which of them should be set aside altogether? And it requires an external standard to do that. 
And our culture is very glad to be that external standard for us. If you're a woman in the room today, our culture is very glad to tell you that your career is way more important than having a family. Not to say that maybe it's entirely wrong or the other, but one is certainly more important than the other. But I would suggest that looking to cultural norms doesn't necessarily help us either. Because the cultural norms are just as conflicted and just as fluid as it is to look internally. If I take you on a little thought experiment on this, imagine we go back a thousand years and we're in London. And there's an Anglo-Saxon warrior walking the streets of London and he says, I look into myself and I find two great desires. On the one hand, I have this desire for aggression, to reach out and to just destroy something. And at the same time, he says, and yet I also feel same-sex attraction. A thousand years ago. What's the culture going to tell him? Oh, this aggression, that's the real you. Live out that. Be yourself. Go kill something. And this desire for same-sex love, what's the culture going to say to him there? Oh, that's not you. Repress that. You've got a problem. You need a counselor. Go see him or her. But if we were to fast forward a thousand years and take the same example, you've got a young modern guy walking around in London, has the exact same two desires to, of aggression to reach out and to, to kill somebody or something, and same-sex attraction, what's the culture now going to say to him? Oh, come over here. This is the real you. Lean into that. Yes, live out that identity. Look inward. That's who you are. This over here, the aggression. Oh, no, that's, that's bad. That's repressive. That's not the real you. Shut that down. Don't embrace it. And so, so the point of this is that neither of them would actually be acting in truthfulness to themselves, right? Both are taking cues from the culture around them, telling them who they're supposed to be. So no, no matter how much our modern culture says, be true to yourself, look internal, be brave, have the courage to you know, live your own truth, they're not actually doing it. None of us are. Everyone is reading off the cultural teleprompters and pretending like they're being true to themselves. It's just not possible to live this way. So my point in saying all of this is this, this cultural narrative of saying, be true to yourself for a variety of reasons sounds nice, but it's actually impossible to live out. And for as long as you try to live it out, it's going to end up being destructive in your life. When you see the achievement-based view of identity, how it makes you fragile, it's very individualized and ends up making you conflicted. So the question then is if we say, this is what our, how our culture is telling us to identify ourselves, is there a better way forward? I think there is. And I want to suggest the Christian identity is better than how our, our modern identity is framed in a couple of ways, all right? Let's take a look here first. The Christian identity is this. Christian identity is received. It's received. Christian identity is not something I do, not something I achieve, in fact, as a pastor, I think it's important you understand, I'm not a Christian because I think I'm a good person. I can live up to that standard. I'm a Christian precisely because I know I'm not a good person. And I need to receive an identity from outside myself because I'm not someone who measures up. It's a very different way of thinking about things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul is writing in the New Testament and, uh, and it has a helpful way of, of saying this. Here's how he says it. For our sake, he, being God, made him, being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Here's what that means. Jesus came, he's saying, and he knew no sin. He lived the perfect life that none of us lived. We've all made mistakes. The Bible calls that sin. So Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we didn't live so that if you trust in him, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection that conquers death, you can receive his identity, and God will treat you as he treats Jesus, with his perfection, his righteousness. This is how Christian identity works itself out. And you say, boy, I receive an identity instead of working to achieve an identity. I heard it described once like a physics exam, where you show up, you're not prepared for the test, you bomb it, and you realize, boy, I have failed this exam, and I'm going to fail this class. But right before you go and turn it in, there's somebody else in the class, let's call your classmate Jesus, who aced the exam. And at the last minute, he erases his name and writes your name on it. And he gives you the exam. And he erases your name on your exam and writes his name there. And you receive the 100%. You ace the test, pass the class, and he on the cross... So how it ties into the Bible here, this analogy, would receive the punishment, the consequences for your failing exam, where your life didn't measure up. So what that means in the Bible is not giving you, you know, little self-help guidelines. Here's how you can study a little better. Here's a hack, this app to get on your phone so that maybe you can do a little better next time. Saying, no, no, I'm not making you better. I'm offering you an entirely new grade. I'm offering you a brand new life, not a way just to improve yourself. It's a radically different way of thinking about who you are and what it means to be a Christian. And yes, it's costly because then you have to recognize, boy, do I actually measure up? I don't think I do. Do I actually need Jesus or do I think I'm pretty good on my own? It cuts us to the heart to think about that. And maybe you're here and you're saying, Justin, that sounds good, but my understanding of Christianity was that there's a lot of rules that need to be followed. Self-discipline is a big part of it. You're not really talking about that. Is that... Is that actually part of the Christian ballgame here or, or not so much? And the, the answer is yes, there are rules that are part of Christianity, and there's self-discipline that is part of Christianity, but it's not at the core of Christianity. That's what I'm trying to explain here, what, what's, what's right at the core. Um, I referenced Eric Liddell before, the 1924 Olympic runner from Great Britain. Here's how he explains this sort of um, question that, that we're dialoguing with right now. Here's what he says. True Christianity starts with the new birth. Christianity is not discipline, though discipline enters into it. Christianity is not morality, but the moral laws will be followed. Christianity is not following a great example, but this will be done. Christianity is not living by laws or rules. It is living by grace. Grace, receiving an identity from Christ, not working that you can achieve it. So it's a fundamental contrast between what the Christian concept of identity is and what the modern one is, that it's received, not achieved. And so if you hear someone talking about an identity in Christ, this is what they're talking about. I've received his perfect righteousness, and I'm no longer striving myself to try and prove, like Harold Abrams said, that I've got these 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, that I've worked hard enough to get there. So Christian identity, most fundamentally, is received. But secondly, it's secure. Christian identity is secure. It's not fragile. And this just really flows out of a received identity in saying this. If your identity rests in achievement, then it's going to be fragile because you have to keep performing, 
right? It's a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of world. But if Jesus' life and death and resurrection is your identity, then it's secure because that has been accomplished, it is fixed, and it's never going to change. And you notice the, the, the contrast then on the fragility of an achieved identity. I'm working for it. You know, conservatives are, are asking themselves the same kind of achieved morality that's um, somewhat fragile. Have I worked hard enough in my life? Have I not relied on the government enough? Have I been pro-life enough? Is that old, you know, biblical, well, not biblical, churchy kind of saying, don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do? You conservatives say, have I done that? Is that the way I've lived my life? Have I earned it? And progressives, similarly, have got a different set of kind of political ethics they're trying to live up to. Say, I've achieved my identity that also leave them fragile, saying, well, have I cared enough about social justice? Have I done enough to end racism? Have I done enough to defend the oppressed? Have I earned it? And it always leaves you fragile, saying, have I done enough lately? I, I saw a quote from Madonna in a, a piece that Vanity Fair did on her not so long ago. Uh, and she kind of spoke to this uh, fragility that comes when your identity rests in what you do. Now, you always have to keep reinventing yourself. And here, here's how she said it. She said, my, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Isn't it sad to hear her say that? It's an ongoing angst and anxiety. Here she is, the queen of pop, the best-selling female recording artist of all time. She has the most number one hit singles in America, in Canada, in Australia, in Italy, and in Spain. And if no amount of achievement can give her a secure identity, don't mean to be offensive to anybody in the room, you're not going to achieve like she did. And if it won't satisfy her, then nothing you can do will actually be able to satisfy you at the deepest level either. That's why it's so important we think about what were Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished. It's done. Secure identity. Whereas the Buddha would say, keep striving, keep working. Jesus said, no, no, it's finished. Trust in me, not what in you can do. That's the second thing. The Christian identity is, is very secure. and gives you grounding for your life. Here's the third thing. Christian identity is transformational. Christian identity is transformational. I think, I think it's very important and True to say this, that the only identity that can offer you the resources for real, lasting change is the Christian identity. It's the only way to truly change in the long run. Because if your identity is in your achievement, when you're doing well, you'll grow in confidence. And it's good to be confident. You say, boy, I just got this done, this done, this done. I'm feeling good. Let's take the hill on the next thing. But you're not going to be growing in humility. And if your identity is in achievement... If you're doing only okay, you'll probably be growing in humility, like, well, I probably should second-guess myself, should probably double-check the math on this, make sure it's the right thing to do, but you're not going to be growing in confidence. 
and in boldness. But this idea of the boldness and the humility together is just utterly unique to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that you can be bold in truth while still humble with those that you disagree with. You see, an insecure identity means when you come to disagreement, you have to put down somebody else. That's one of the first lessons you learn in elementary school, right? The bully who's being mean to you is insecure himself, so he's mean to you so he feels better about himself. He's an insecure identity. And therefore, he's not able to be changed through it because he's, he's not secure in his identity yet. And so liberals will, will look at conservatives and say, boy, look at those bigots over there. Conservatives look at liberals and say, boy, look at those Marxists over there. Just slam each other down. And both are acting like the Pharisees in Luke 18 who are saying, oh God, I thank you. I'm not like that guy over there. You see, it cuts both ways here. So you ask, well then how can I maintain boldness in truth and humility towards those with disagreeing views? How can I have both at the same time? It's only when you recognize only when you recognize that God would become a man, come to the earth, live a perfect life that you didn't live, and do it for you because you needed him and there was no other way. And it humbles you. And yet it gives you incredible boldness to know that as you're going forward, he's with you and for you and his spirit lives in you. And as you are seeking to accomplish his mission, that the gates of hell cannot stop the church. And so there's an amazing boldness that comes there because it's not grounding it in yourself. Christian identity is actually transformational. And so the only way, the only way to be truly changed, to be truly transformed is to live in a received identity. And the only way to be secure in who you are is to live in this received identity. So maybe the simplest way of saying it is this. Friends, you must not be true to yourself. Don't be true to yourself. It's not going to get you anywhere. But you must humble yourself. Come to Jesus in humility, confessing you are a sinner, you need his grace. You don't measure up, but you want him to take over your life and to make you not a better person, but a new and a different person. And you live all your days following him. It's costly, yes, you've got to give up your life, your pursuits, the things you were trying to do, the identity you were trying to achieve, It'll cost you all of that. But there's actually no other way forward except to trust in him and to follow him with everything you've got. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. You died in our place. You rose again to conquer the grave to give new life, not just better versions of ourselves, but entire transformation. That you would